I understand there may be as many as seven more in the next service. And uh, so we got about 10 people around here who are making professions of faith that they know Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior, uh, and they're following through in baptism. But I want to take you back to that moment. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I want you to, take, I want you to go back to that moment when you asked God to save you. When you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. When you responded to the Holy Spirit's call upon your life to come to know Him. And so I want to take you back to that moment. I, I remember when I was a kid, there was a song. It was on a, you remember this song where you had to stand up on the day of the week you believed you were saved? Because some of us, it's been so long, we're not sure of the day of the week. But do you remember that song? It was on a Monday, somebody touched me. Is that, did, maybe the church I was in made that up. I don't know. Uh, but anyway, and then you would stand up. And then I remember, uh, of course, I got saved on a Sunday morning in children's church. And I remember, all right, get ready to stand up. All right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the whole church would stand up on Sunday. Do, do y'all remember the song? Please tell me I'm not the only. Thank you. There's about four of you that know the song. I would do it now, but you don't pay me to sing. So anyway, but I want to take you back to that moment. Now, I want you to think about this. What led up to the moment of your salvation? When did the process of your salvation start? There seems to be a mystery to that. There's a mystery to the whole idea of salvation. And, and so many times we think, well, salvation is when I called out to God, he saved me, and I trusted Jesus, and I returned from my sin and all that. That's a great, that's a great moment, and that's exactly probably the way you remember it. But there's something else that came with your salvation. There was some maneuvering that was being done. There was something that went on before the foundations of the world. And there's a mystery associated with everyone's salvation. And so I want you to turn to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. The passage we're looking at today has called, caused much confusion for those who have made a life of studying God's word. With the confusion surrounding the idea and the scope of something called predestination. The study of predestination and the belief of something called predestination in times past has literally split congregations. It has split denominations where we have denominations that exist as those denominations because of this one word, this one concept, this one idea in Scripture. And so when you begin to look at your salvation and you begin to say, okay, how did all this come about? What led to this moment? Well, this sermon, I want you to understand, is more educational than it is practical. I'll, I'll just be honest with you. When I attempt to put sermons together, I try to be very practical. I try to be very relevant to, to what you can take out of here and use on Monday morning or Sunday afternoon or through the week. And so that's always my goal, and I know the other pastors do that too. But this sermon this morning is a little more educational, and I believe it's worth it because I think it's vital that we attempt, notice I said attempt, we attempt to understand the mystery of our salvation. And that's what I want to attempt to do here today. So look at the introduction. What is the role of predestination in salvation? Now, it provides the basis for our salvation. So if you were to say, okay, where does it, what provides the basis for salvation? It is the concept of predestination as the Bible seems to describe it. Now, it also coincides, predestination also coincides with God's foreknowledge 
his sovereign will, his providential care, his election, and a person's free will. Now, how do you put all that together and try to understand it? I'm just going to tell you, when you leave here, you're probably not going to have the answer. <laughs> but what I'm going to try to do is explain it to you the best way because it is a mystery. I'll be honest with you. I don't know what the debate is all about when it comes to this. I will tell you this. Southern Baptists are in this debate right now. They are right now. And, and I'm telling you, I don't understand the debate. Because it's one of those things we can't explain. It's one of those things we cannot get our minds around. And so this morning, I'm going to try to carry you to the very edge of the mystery. But I'm going to go ahead and tell you, starting out this morning, I'm not going to be able to fill in all the blanks. And that's, that's what makes God God, doesn't it? That's what makes our salvation so mysterious. That's what makes our salvation so great is many times we don't understand the whole gravity of what went in to providing us this salvation. Which brings us to the question, who initiates salvation? Did I choose God or did God choose me? Now some clues seem to rest in Romans chapter 9. So if you were to say, okay, where can I get some clues as to this whole idea of predestination, God's foreknowledge, his providential care, that whole idea of forethought and everything, where can I get some clues? You can get it from the text we're looking at today. So look at Romans chapter 9. I hope you'll have turned there. First of all, look on your outline. Salvation is based on God's grace, not our race. Now some of you are like, well, that's cute. Now, when I say race, I'm talking about what we're born into. We're not born into salvation as it relates to our parents, as it relates to those things. It just doesn't happen. And you could say, well, where's the proof of that? Well, right here in verse 6 of Romans chapter 9, Paul says, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect and what he's referring back to is where we were last week when he started talking about all the privileges, privileges of the Israelites. You remember him talking about it? They had this, they had this, they had that, the covenants. God had all these promises. All that was available to them. And then he comes to verse 6. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. All those things that were said about them. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. I want you to think about that. What, what does that even mean? Well, here's what part of it means. It means those who identify and say, I am a Jew or I'm of Israel. Just because you're born into it doesn't mean you're of Israel. Because Israel is where the covenant rests. Israel is where it rests. Now, they weren't born into the covenant. They came by faith to the covenant. God did make a covenant with their father Abraham to say, I will multiply your seed, uh, you become a mighty nation. But to enter into the covenant of it, it comes by way of faith, not necessarily by way of being born into it. And so when we look at this, God is, is pointing out, or Paul's pointing out, there's something to this. Now, I want you to think about this. In 1948, if you didn't know this, this is very important. In 1948, the Jewish people were reestablished as a nation known as Israel. Did you know that? Did, did you know they became a nation for the first time in uh, over 2,000 years? And all of a sudden, there they are. In 1967, in the Six-Day War, they acquired more of Palestine and control over Jerusalem, the city itself. You can turn on the news even today, this past weekend, and you can see that the battle is still going on. It's still going on right there in the news today. 
And so what you have here, I want you to think about. However, when you look at the nation of Israel as it sits and exists today, they are still considered a secular nation. And here's why. Because there's atheists that make up their population. There's Muslims. There's, there's some Jewish uh, in their faith, but they're still looking for the Messiah. And they're, believe it or not, there's very few Christians that are in the nation of Israel that are there now. And so you see, we can see a nation, we can see a people that are there, but we're not talking necessarily about people of faith. We're talking about people that make up a nation, a secular nation. Now, how do you become a Jew? As I said earlier, you become a Jew, you're either born into the family or you accept the faith. You mean to tell me I can be not of Jewish descent but still be considered a Jew? Yeah, by faith you can. But let me just say this. When you start paralleling that to what we are as Christians, just as the Jew, we, we're not born into being a Christian. It doesn't happen that way. You may say, well, well listen, when you look at my family tree, you're going to see a whole list of Christians. Every generation had to make a decision whether they, whether they would trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior, including you. You'll have to make that decision. It's not what you're born into. It's, it's the faith. It's what you accept. It's what you, uh, when you come to Christ. So Paul was saying, just because you had, a, had Jewish parents did not make you automatically make you a child of God. Salvation is not based on who your parents are, your ancestors, your family tree, or your background. What makes you a child of God, listen, is not from the family you're born into, but the internal intentions and the condition of your heart. What saves you is your faith, not your family. And again, there's so many people who are confused by that. We're not born into the faith. We receive the faith. We come to the faith. Next, salvation is based on God's promise, not our preference. This is where he gets a little more specific. And I had the verses wrong there. This is where verse 7, you should look at verse 7 here. 9, 7 says, Nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. Meaning, again, you're not born into being a child of God. You're not born into that. He's saying, but the children of the promise are counted as a seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Now, when you look at this, it may be a little confusing. But when you know the story, there's a little more clarity that comes to the story. Now, Paul is given an illustration of Abraham back in Genesis chapter 21. Now, many of you are aware that Abraham had two sons. There was one son that came by way of the handmaiden. You remember the story? You remember Abraham is old, Sarah's old. She's well beyond barren years. And, uh, and, and, and what? Oh, barren, yeah, barren years. Anyway, all that is messed up right now for him. And, and all of a sudden, Sarah says, okay, I'm going to help God with this promise. Abraham, here's the handmaiden. I know I can't have children. She can. But you know something? God wasn't interested in that. Did you know that? 13 years before the promise was realized, there was a son who was born named Hagar. Hagar comes on the scene. This is, seems to be talk of that right here. And basically, it's the idea that Paul was saying that the seed did not come by way of Hagar. The seed's going to come by a miracle. And God was still interested in miracles, and God wanted to prove, hey, my hand is fully in this process of what I'm about to do. And I'm going to allow a 90-some-year-old woman to have a child. 
by a hundred-year-old man. You see, God wanted us to understand that this didn't just come about. This is something he orchestrated. This is something he put forward. And that's what we're seeing here. Now, I want you to understand that what's happening is the fact that, that it, when, when Abraham was old in years, God said, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. And here's possibly the Abraham could have thought, Ishmael? God said, no, that, that may be your preference, but this is not the child of promise. That may be what you're up to. That may be through your manipulation, but this isn't what I'm talking about. The miracle baby is Isaac, and he is the one who's going to be the father of many nations. So salvation is based on God's promise to save us, not our preference and even our manipulations. Now, here's what I want you to understand. This is why these verses give us clue even about our own salvation. It is the fact that when you go back and you look at history, God orchestrates history to accomplish his purposes. He orchestrates it. He puts it in motion. He calls certain people out. He says, this is what's expected of you. This is the way I'm going to do it. We may try to manipulate it. We may have our own preferences about it. But he says, no, I'm calling the shots here. I'm working this thing out. Did you know that the very same thing could be said about your very own salvation? You see, so many of us do not understand that our salvation began way back way back. It began to be realized when we came to know him as our Lord and Savior. But everything was in motion before the foundations of the world. That's what predestination is trying to tell us. That's what God's foreknowledge is trying to tell us. That's what his providential care is trying to tell us, that it began way back there. And when we begin to understand that, yeah, we can look at it and say, boy, look how special we are to the heart of God. And rightfully so. I think that's what he wants us to draw from it. But he also wants us to draw from it from the fact that he has plans, he has purposes, and there's things he wants to do in and through our lives. And he begins to orchestrate all that. Next, salvation is not based on God's, salvation is based on God's providence, not our performance. Now, this is where we get into some of the verses that are, that just kind of blow our minds, to be honest with you. And when I read it, you'll see what I mean. Look at verse 10. He says, not only this. Now, what he's doing, he's moving the conversation. He's moving the conversation from Abraham and Sarah and the whole idea of Isaac, the the child of promise. He's getting ready to move to the next generation. And he says, let's talk about Rebecca. Rebecca was Isaac's wife. And so he says, but when Rebecca also conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, remember, son of Abraham, for the children not yet being born nor having done any good or evil, he's leading you to say it wasn't because of anything special about themselves or their performance necessarily, but that the purpose of God according to the election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. Now that, that's that's some difficult material there. It's that idea that God, there is something about him electing There is something about whom he calls. There is something about his plan, the grand plan, that we will never fully understand on this side of heaven. But we see that he begins to work, and our salvation could almost be seen through this. And then it says in verse 12, it was said to her, to Rebecca, the older shall serve the younger. Rebecca's carrying twins. 
And it says, what does it say? He says, the older shall serve the younger. Now, what do we know about biblical history? The older is the one who's served by the rest. There's something special about the older one. They stand out. They're given certain promises. They're given certain things. And he's saying, we're getting ready to switch this whole thing. Again, why is God doing it this way? To say, hey, it's me who's calling the shots. It's me who's walking away from what normally happens in normal processes and said, no, I'm going to have something, a miracle is going to take place. Something spectacular is going to take place so that people will know that my hand's on this. That's what he's doing here. And Paul's pointing that out. But then it gets crazier. Look at verse 13. As it is written, Jacob, speaking of God, Jacob I have loved, but Esau... I have hated. When you read that in face value, does it make you kind of want to scratch your head and say, what? What? You mean to tell me God loves one of them and he hates the other one? I didn't know God opera. What do you mean? Well, to really understand this, you got to look at the broader scope of Scripture. You really do. Because when you read a difficult passage, you know, one thing we have to be careful with when it comes to God's word, we have to read it in context. We got to understand that there may be more history that's out there than what we currently understand right here. And that's the case with this, with this statement. Because when you go back and study this, what you're finding here is that this is a statement from Malachi chapter 1. Malachi chapter 1. Now, Malachi chapter 1 was written 2,000 years after Esau and Jacob were born. 2,000 years later. So by then, we're not talking about two individuals. You know what we're talking about by then? The two nations that developed under them. You, you get it? You see where I'm headed with this? So we're not talking about God hating the individual. But God is looking at certain groups of people. He's saying, this is what I hate. And, and we understand this from this strange verse. So Malachi chapter 1. Now, again, many people have taken this verse and gone off the, I believe, a doctrinal, tar, a tan, on a, a doctrinal tangent, meaning they believe God just automatically chooses to love some people and automatically chooses to hate others. And so they, they developed this whole story that, uh, uh, and, and it's hard for me to get my mind around. And when people say, okay, here's what predestination means. It means he created some to go to heaven and, and he created some to be eternally condemned. I have a hard time with that. I look at that and I say, well, what about all these other verses over here that says, whosoever shall come to him will be saved. That cries out to him will be saved. And, and, and so what they do is they use these verses, and I think they're taking it a little bit way out of context because this is 2,000 years later. Listen, the nation of Jacob will be called Israel. Did you know that? He's going to have 12 sons. So we have the nation of Jacob, which is called Israel. The nation of Esau will become the Edomites. Have you ever read about them in Scripture? They weren't good people. They were the enemy of Israel. They became enemies. They went, after, they went after the Israelites. They, 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 they created all kinds of havoc for them. When God said, this is my promise to them, they, can, they contended that promise. They went after that promise. And so we see the strife. And basically, we have the idea that God basically looked at the Edomites 2,000 years later and saw 
people who were full of adultery, fornication, idolatry, and wickedness. These were not the ones that God had chosen. But here's what's interesting about this. When you study the history of Israel, what did they fall into a lot of times? Some of the same stuff. But God says, you know something? I've chosen these people. This is where the promise to the world is going to come from. This is how the people of the world will know that I am God. These will be the people that I've called out. And that's what he chose. Whether we like it or not, that's what he chose. And we see it so clearly here. Now, the word hate also in this context is simply a word of contrast. Do you get that? He loves this one, but he hates this one. And when you look at love and hate, what do, you, do you have a greater contrast than that? You really don't. And so basically what he's saying is, is, is there's a great chasm of contrast between the nation of Israel and these people that I've just identified. Did you know Jesus said something very similar when he walked the face of the earth? There's a verse in there that's hard to get our minds around, but, but basically Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow me, he's got to hate his mother and father. Have you ever come across that verse? That's not an easy one to deal with either. But you know what Jesus was saying? Of course he would not say, hate your mother and father. You, you know what he said? Even the Ten Commandments said, honor your father and mother. So what are we to do with those two verses? How, how do we justify that? How do we look at that? Because Jesus, what Jesus was saying, he's saying, let me show you how deep the contrast between your relationship with me and what it's going to mean to those that mean so much to you. You're going to love me in such a way that it will appear that anyone else, those other relationships tend to be irrelevant because of your love for me. And that's the same thing that I think we're looking at here. There seems to be some of that going on here. So salvation is based on God's providence, not our performance. Because before, way back there before, God chose these people to do this and the Edomites became a different people. And God wasn't too impressed with them. Next, salvation is based on God's mercy not our merit. And again, we're getting clues as to what our salvation may look like. Look at verse 14. What shall we say then? You mean to tell me God loved this one and hated this one? What shall we say? What, what kind of charges can we bring against God? Is there unrighteousness with God? And what's Paul's response? Certainly not. Certainly not. You're, he's almost saying you're seeing this wrong. For he, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. What's he saying? It's not the whole idea of the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's, it's who I choose to show mercy upon, who I choose to show compassion upon. Now, don't raise your hand, but I want you to think about this. How many of you, these verses are very perplexing to you? I told you I would probably create more questions with this sermon than answers. And it's because these are difficult, difficult to wrap our minds around. And the reason I, the reason I look at these verses and say, you know something, maybe, we, maybe we're not intended to know the full mystery of what's going on here. But one thing I do understand is that God is working providentially <laughs> throughout history. God is sovereign. He, he has a foreknowledge. He sees everything, and we're going to see that in just a moment. But look how, how big the scope is. What he's saying here is salvation or him choosing does not depend on man's effort or performance. It, it does depend on God's mercy. 
If it were not for God's mercy, none of us are going to make it. You do understand that. So if you had to be good enough to receive God's love, you would have to become as good as God. And that's just not possible. So Titus chapter 3 says this. It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy that he has saved us. Now, let's pause here for just a moment. Again, I just told you that these verses can maybe indicate a little bit and expose a little bit of the mystery of what we're trying to understand about how God's works. And it could also be seen in how our salvation can be seen. But, but to understand that a little more fully, let's look at some definitions. Look on your outline. What is needed to understand salvation? We need to understand these definitions. First of all, salvation. Salvation. It is God reaching out to the sinfulness of the human condition by providing a Savior, of course we know him as Jesus, who makes one acceptable before him. The whole idea is to be acceptable before God. That's what the word justification or justified means. We're, we're, our attempt to come before God is, is somehow to be accepted by him. And guess what the Bible says? There's nothing you can do in and of yourself to even make that possible. It's only through what Jesus has done on your behalf that it is possible. And so that's the whole idea of salvation. And then number two, predestination. What, what is it? If you were to strip away all these theological debates and you were just say, give me the basics of what that word actually means. Here's what it means. To mark out ahead of time or to predetermine. Now, how many of you are clear on it now? I'm just as confused as you are, and I'm up here teaching you. But where I can draw from is the idea of how God marks something out. That's what predestination is. He marks it out. That's what the verses we were just reading is all about. He has a plan, and he looks at the, we go back and we look at history. We have the right way of looking back at it where part of what we're dealing with still needs to be played out, but we do have some clues and answers how that's going to be played out. But when we look back at it, we see that God was marking it out the whole time. He had a plan. He was, he was marking out the parts. Did you know he does the same thing with you to bring you to salvation? He marks it out. He marks the story out to get us to the point of salvation. And I'll show you that in just a moment. Foreknowledge. It's the knowledge of something before it exists or happens. Some of you are like, well, I came here to get that. That's a good one there, yeah. But it's important to understand that. Foreknowledge is a big deal. Number four, sovereignty. The influence, actions, choices, and thoughts of supreme God. His sovereignty. You know what sovereignty really means? God is going to act, and no one can do a thing about it. That's what God's sovereignty means. God is getting ready to act, or has acted, and no one can challenge what he puts out there. No one. Number five, providence. It's a manifestation of divine care or direction. It's how he's directing something. It's how he's caring for something, bringing it to that. Number six, uh, election. It is a loving God choosing to reach out with salvation. That is the, the New Testament terminology. 
And then number seven, this is what you throw into the mix and you scratch your head, free will. It's the human ability to make choices concerning salvation. And you see, when you start putting all this together and you say, okay, I have seven definitions that I've attempted to look through scripture to say, these are the ones that we're dealing with when it comes to our salvation. This is where we're having the issue. How do we balance all this out? How does it look? Well, let me give you an illustration. Some of you are wondering why this crooked door's up here. I did my best to mount it, but I think it's leaning. Isn't it leaning a little bit? Let's suppose this is perfect, okay? Because <laughs> our salvation is perfect. But I want you to understand that the door itself represents salvation. And, and, and did Jonathan put this up? Here? He, he put it up here wrong. Where's he at? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> it's wrong. I got, I got to show you something, but I can show it to you this way. All right, so the door itself represents salvation. So the doctrine, listen, the doctrine of salvation, okay, doctrine of salvation teaches that there is both human responsibility and divine sovereignty, okay? So your salvation, baseline, put it on the bottom shelf. What does it, what does it take? It, 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 when you look at it, it, it takes human responsibility, but God's sovereignty, okay? Look at Hebrews 2, 3. If we, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? Titus 2.11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all. Now, let's look at this idea. Why is there a mystery associated with our salvation? Let me give you some clues. This is not on your outline. We could be dealing with something where you have time versus eternity. You got time. How many of you realize that time is just something that God marked out? That goes back to the idea of predestination. Time is just a, something he marked out. Do you all agree with that? Do you get that? You, got, you have eternity. And eternity is where God exists. That's the, the ways of God exists in eternity. And all of a sudden, he comes to some point where he says, I'm going to mark out this place right here. And this is what we'll call time. You get it? Genesis 1-1, Revelation 22. You get what I'm talking about? Beginning, end. God says, I'm going to mark out time. Okay? He predestined that. He's over time. He looks at it. He says, this is what we're dealing with. Okay? So that's what he did. How about this? Free will versus God's sovereignty. Well, I mean, what does he do in that whole idea? This whole idea of free will, there's human responsibility. The Bible says, I have to respond to this to receive it. Do you see that in scripture? Yeah, that's what it's saying. But then God's sovereignty. We go to that whole idea that unless he draws you, you can't be saved. <laughs> well, again, there's a mystery. How about this? Knowledge versus, versus mystery itself. The part that we know when it comes to our salvation, how many of you agree we should be responding to? Do you agree with that? But the mystery, this is where all the debate occurs. This is what's splitting churches. This is what's splitting congregations and all this. And it, frankly, I'm shocked that it does. You're not going to answer this. Not on this side of heaven. There is a mystery that hangs in the balance. And it's our responsibility and God's sovereignty. How do you put all that together? How do you make sense of it all? I'm here to declare it won't make sense this side of heaven. His ways are his ways and they're greater than our ways. His thoughts are his thoughts and they're greater than anything we can ever come to. And you know something? 
I'm okay with that. Because to me, that's what makes God, God, and me who I am. And I'm fine with it. How about this? What's this mystery? It's what we are capable of understanding versus what we're not capable of understanding. And I think there are a lot of predestination surrounds that. So, I don't know the answer. So after this sermon, you can email me all you want this week or call me or however you want to do it. I'm telling you right now, I don't know the answer. <laughs> I don't have the answer. I can give you the clues. I can give you a way of looking at it. But I don't have all the answer to it. It's just not there. How about this? The side of the door facing us is our view of salvation. Okay? So, let me go over here. I think this is right. Yep, this is right. All right. This is our view of salvation. Okay? This is what we're looking at. The door represents salvation. The moment I reach for the doorknob, let's just say I'm enacting my salvation. You understand it? I'm reaching for it. How do, what is reaching for it? What could it look like? My repentance, my, my for, the forgiveness that I'm receiving, my faith to just do what he said to do. I'm responding to the door. And the only way you can respond to a door is how? Through the doorknob. Do you get it? So I'm responding to salvation. This door's my salvation. My response is the doorknob. But everything that I know about salvation is on this side. Now, you may say, well, what about this side? Well, this is heaven's view. And guess what? That's a different view. And we have clues in Scripture as to what this view looks like. But we don't know the full answer to that. That's the dilemma. That's what we don't know. But if we take God's Word as it says and just try to understand it the best we can with the Scriptures we're using and the clues that we have, on this side we have our view, repentance, faith, not of works, not of anything to eat. The Holy Spirit drawing us, that's all we, that's what we know. This is what we've been called to respond to. Okay, how many of you get this? Nod your head, you get this? All right, that's what we have so far. Okay, now on this side, we have 2 Peter 3, 9. It says, the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. Now, how would you take that on this view of, your sal of salvation for all? That anyone is capable of coming and reaching out for the doorknob. Would you take that from that verse? Okay. All right. Thank you. Appreciate you. Some of you have I've lost you already. Romans 10, 13. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Again, what does that imply? It implies there's salvation here. It's available to all. You just reach out for the knob with the repentance, the faith, all the... So what are we left with? God doesn't want anybody to go to hell. God wants everybody to be saved. That's what we clearly understand. That's what the Bible says. But then we have free will, which is what is on this side of the wall. Free will basically says it's the ability to make choices concerning salvation. It's a choice. Now, why would there be a choice involved in something so great, so mysterious? Well, didn't God give the, uh, Adam and Eve the choice in the garden? Did he? Do you remember that? Gave him a choice. Said, you know, you can eat of every tree, have at it, have the time of your life. You can even name the animals if you want to. I'll bring them to you. I mean, this is going to be a great place. But there's something at the center of this garden you're to stay away from. Why would he even put a choice in the matter? Because God wanted there to be a love. He wanted them every day to wake up and choose him 
over their personal desire. That's what he wanted. He, that was his way of saying, you're choosing me. That's a beautiful picture there, isn't it? But if that, if that tree would never been in the garden, would we really have free will? Would there actually be love the way God's defined it? No, he wanted every day for them to choose that, to choose that. Okay, now let's come through this. So, so here's what I'm doing. I'm on this side. I'm responding to God's word. I'm reaching out for the doorknob. That tells me I've received the salvation. And I come through the door. Okay, I hope it doesn't fall on me. And, and I come on the other side. And now where, where am I at? You're in heaven now. Okay. Now when I look at, what am I looking at? Am I looking at the same door? I'm looking at the same door. This door represents my salvation. But guess what? I'm now looking at it from heaven's view. You get it? This is the part, it's the mystery. This is the part that seemed to be some holes in understanding or the ways or concepts of God are so great that, that we, we have no way of understanding this fully. And so I've come through the door. Here's the verses, Ephesians 1, 5. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. You mean to tell me I go through the door, uh, the, the door of salvation, I get, on, I get into heaven, I begin to look back, the scripture gives me clues, and here it is. God was up to this the whole time. He marked out how I would come to salvation. He had the knowledge that one day I would do that. He put it all together. I get on the other side and I see that my salvation didn't begin that moment I prayed with that person or asked Jesus to come into my heart. There was something he marked out about my history that led me to the point where I am that I could receive that salvation. How about this one? Romans 8.30. Moreover, moreover, whom he predestined, these he called. Whom he called, these he also justified. The word justified means he made right, okay? And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So really, when you start looking at our salvation, there is a part that can be realized right now. I am justified. I'm on this side of the door. I'm made right before God. And therefore, when I step to the other side, and now I'm standing before God, there's another part to it. We call it glorified. New body, new environment, a new place that God's created for me. Again, your Christian life did not begin with your commitment to God. Your Christian life began when you committed, when God committed himself to you. How many of you that makes sense? And what's what we find here? Now, this side, let me just give this to you quickly. This side, I'm, I'm looking at it from heaven's view. I was predestined. It means he marked out ahead of time. There was something he marked out ahead of time. What could that look like? Born at this time in history. That could be part of it. Okay? How many of you agree? That's God marking out time for me. Born this time in history. You get that? Okay. Born in the U.S. How many of you thank God most days that you were born in the U.S. <laughs> now, there's different deceptions we deal with here in the U.S., but let's just face it. If we want to hear the gospel or we want to hear anything about the gospel, we just turn knobs, and we hear all about Jesus. And some of us right and some of us wrong, but we can hear about Jesus. And then we're born to parents of faith. If you were born in a Christian family, you need to be very grateful because they've helped decide your eternity. God marked that out. He marked it out. How about placed you here in this church? 
Some of you, I ain't too sure about that. I think <laughs> he put you here. He put you here. How, here. Let me get one even greater. You being here today. You being here today. He put you here. Young man came up to me right after baptism and said, I just want you to know. I rededicated my life today to the Lord. That's before I even got up here and spoke. Kind of hurt my feelings, but rededicated his life to the Lord. God marked it out. If you come to know him today, God marked it out. He predestined. He's looking there. How about the foreknowledge? The knowledge of God means he has always had an eternal plan for those who are saved. God knew in advance. God knows everything. Listen to this. This will blow your mind. There's no past, present, and future with God. If he marked out time, there's no past, present, and future with God. What does God see? Is he standing over here at this end hoping everything turns out the way he hopes it does? No, he's standing over time. He sees it as it is. He's already seen the end. It's all there. He's watching it. It's not something that's running linear. He's looking at a picture. Do you get that? That's what he's looking at. That's the reason this is such a mystery to us. You mean to tell me we're working, we're moving through history. God marked out some time for us and we're moving through history. You mean to tell me he's not seeing it the way we're seeing it? Absolutely not. He sees the whole picture. Does that make sense? That's the foreknowledge of God. That's what's on this side. We don't get that on that side. We get that on this side. Here, 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 here's some more. It just gets better. Sovereignty. The influence, actions, choices, and thoughts of supreme God. Now, how many of you just blows you away? Supreme God marked out time for you in such a way that you could come to know Christ. And that began before the foundations of the world. How many of you are blown away by that? I am. Providence. A manifestation of divine care and direction. It simply means that God took the initiative in your salvation. God called you and you responded. You, didn't, you did not take the initiative in your salvation. God did. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 4, we love him how and why? Because he first loved us. It all began with him. How about election? A loving God choosing to reach out with salvation. Election is that act by the divine will of God whereby before the foundation of the world, God chose to save an individual. So where, what are we left with? Here's what we're left with. From the believer's perspective, we are saved the moment God calls. Okay? We reach out. He's calling. He's taking the initiative in our salvation. From God's perspective, we come to the other side. We don't see this part. We have clues. We see certain things. Salvation is a finished work in eternity past. <laughs> Again, you're sitting here saying, I am more confused than if I did not show up here today. Well, join the club. Join the club. We're all in company with that. We're doing the best thing, the best way we know how to explain our salvation. And y'all, there's still mystery associated with it. I want to close with this. God works in our lives with purpose, but not to the point where he works 
where he works, his work is that he violates our free will. You understand that, right? If he violates our free will, he doesn't have what he wants in the deal. What he wants is a response. What he wants is our love towards him. What he wants is for us to glorify him. What he wants is for us to worship him. That does not happen when he infringes upon our free will. So he may change the circumstances of our lives. He may orchestrate the circumstances of our lives. He may work providentially in our lives, but he leaves our reactions and our decisions to us. We choose whether we will be faithful or rebellious to the purposes God places before us. So it's both divine and it's both free will. Can you get your mind around that? Just say no. Just get it over with no. If you got it figured out, maybe I do want you to email me. But I don't. And I'm okay with that because it's a mystery. I want to ask ushers to come forward if they would. Father, we just come to you right now. We just thank you for your word. And Lord, when we look in your word, there's so many mysteries to it. And, and even the salvation that you present to us and make available to us, Lord. We don't understand it all. We only have one perspective. But Father, we know when we get to heaven, we'll, we'll see the full picture. We just have clues right now. And Father, I just pray that, Lord, if there's someone here today that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, they've never come to that point, but maybe, maybe they understood for the first time in their life right now that you are pursuing them, that you love them, that you want them to respond to your word that's been presented here today. Father, I pray if that's the case, Lord, that they would talk to me before they leave here today. Father, we just thank you for those who will be baptized, that have been baptized, and those who will be baptized in the next service. Thank you so much for those who, who, who have come to know you as our Lord and Savior, who want to identify you in baptism. I thank you for those lovely girls that came today, and just pray, Lord, that this will be a momentous occasion in their life. And Father, we thank you for this offering and pray that you'll use it as, we, as we've been called to do, to go out and teach this and preach this and, and help people to understand the salvation that is so great that's been given to us. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.